Over the years, there have been crimes that have been dubbed their crime of the century. This case was once called that, but it was different. It wasn't something that happened in the heat of the moment. It was something that was very carefully planned. This just went to show that no matter how smart you are, sometimes you can be too smart for your own good. This is the story of Bobby Franks. This case is going to take us back to the Kenwood neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois in 1924, practically a different world. On one spring night, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune named Alvin Goldstein was hanging out around the police station waiting for a story to come in. Around 1 in the morning on May 21st, a senator brought in a very wealthy friend named Jacob Franks. They came in and asked to speak to the police in private. Jacob explained that his 14-year-old son, Bobby, didn't come home from school. They were concerned because they reached out to all of his friends and their parents, and no one had seen Bobby. But then, a phone call came in to the Frank's house. The person on the other end of the phone identified themselves as Johnson, and he claimed that he had kidnapped Bobby and that he would be in touch at a later time. Investigators began gathering information about Bobby. They learned about his family, which was a very wealthy family. His dad, Jacob, manufactured watches. Bobby was 14 years old, and he excelled in just about everything from sports to academics. He loved bowling in particular, and he attended a prestigious private school that was bound to have him accepted into Ivy League colleges. The thought was that the kidnappers were targeting the family for money. So investigators instructed them to go to the house and wait for another phone call from the kidnappers. Everything about this seemed textbook. They would call with a ransom. The wealthy parents would pay the ransom to get their kid back. And the cops would grab the kidnappers as they were trying to pick up the ransom money. The next morning, a letter arrived at the Franks' home. The letter instructed the family to put $10,000 in a cigar box and wrap it up. Then they needed to stand by for further instructions. While the family was gathering the money, the reporter, Alvin, was making his way through his contacts to get information on other stories. Aside from hanging out at the police station making friends with the cops, he was also friends with the medical examiner. When the medical examiner gave him information about a young boy that was brought into the morgue, he quickly put two and two together. Alvin called the Frank family, who was already nervously waiting by the phone. He told them about a young boy at the morgue. The family began breaking down as Alvin described the boy's age, height, and weight. But then he described that the boy had on glasses, and as tragic as it was, the family had hope again, because Bobby didn't wear glasses. Flora Frank, Bobby's mother, did feel that it would be best to send at least someone down to the morgue to verify that it wasn't Bobby, so she asked her brother to go. The next phone call that came into the house was from the kidnappers. They told Jacob that they were sending a cab. He was to take the cab to a drugstore where he would leave the money. 
Before Jacob could get into the cab, Flora's brother called back. He confirmed that the body at the morgue was Bobby Franks. Bobby was found naked. He had trauma to his head and he had also been strangled to death. Things weren't working out at all how anyone expected. Why would Bobby have been killed before the kidnappers got the ransom? Investigators spoke with the man who found Bobby. He was a night shift factory worker walking home through Wolf Lake Reserve. He saw something off the path that caught his attention. As he walked closer, he realized that it was the feet of a young boy sticking out of a culvert. The factory worker saw a pair of eyeglasses that were next to the body, so he picked them up and put them on the boy before running to find the police. Now, that does seem a little weird on its own, but there were a few options with the glasses. Since they didn't belong to Bobby, either they were left by someone else before Bobby was placed there, or they were left there by the killer. Investigators then took a few routes. The eyeglasses weren't a normal kind, they seemed to have been custom built. So they started tracking down where the glasses were made. The next thing was the ransom note. It was very properly written, and parts of it almost sounded poetic. So they thought that it might be someone that was well-educated. All of Bobby's teachers were interviewed. Investigators were trying to see their alibis and their reaction to the news. Then students were interviewed. Multiple students mentioned a teacher named Mr. Mitchell, and that he seemed very odd. They also said that there were rumors that he had solicited young boys for sex. So, this Mr. Mitchell becomes the main focus of the investigation. After looking into him, the investigators learned that he owed almost exactly $10,000 on his mortgage, the same amount as the ransom. So, we have someone with a motive, access to Bobby, and also an English teacher which backs up the poet theory. Mr. Mitchell was one of the first teachers that was interviewed, but investigators brought him in again. His story was that he was alone gardening on the day that Bobby was missing. But he stuck with his story, and he didn't know anything about Bobby's murder and that he didn't have anything to do with it. Around the same time, Alvin was doing his own investigation. He went to Bobby's school asking kids if they had seen Bobby after school on the day that he went missing. And eventually, he got lucky with one student. The kid said that he was walking on the same road and Bobby was up ahead of him walking. He stopped to look at something on the side of the road as a gray car passed. When he looked up, he saw the car driving off, but then he didn't see Bobby anymore. When this was reported to investigators, they ended up letting Mr. Mitchell go because he did not own a car. The next clue that was followed up on was the glasses. They were in fact custom made. A detective was able to track them down to the maker, who said that there were only three frames of those glasses sold in the Chicago area, which had a population of over two million people at the time. Those three people were now the center of the investigation. The first man was out of the country at the time, so he was ruled out. The second person was a woman who had a verified alibi, and the third person was Nathan Leopold Jr. When this name came across the desk, everyone was kind of shocked. Now in today's time, I like to think that we kind of expect the unexpected from everyone. 
Doesn't matter which walk of life you come from, people do bad things. This name to them was a surprise. He also lived in the Kenwood neighborhood and was part of a very prominent family. Now, just to give you a little example of this neighborhood in Chicago, it's a very wealthy area. Muhammad Ali lived there at one point, and Barack and Michelle Obama also had a house there at some time. On May 29th, just a week after the murder, a detective and the state attorney went to the house to meet with Nathan. Nathan was on his way to what everyone believed was a successful career in life. He was 19 years old, and he was already in law school. He was a published writer, and he was fluent in 11 languages. Nathan told investigators that on the day that Bobby was murdered, he was with a friend. He drove to pick up that friend, Richard Loeb, and they had lunch together. After that, he and Richard drove around looking for women to pick up. Around that time, a car wasn't something that a lot of people had. So hearing that he had a car kind of got their hopes up. But his was red, not gray like the witness had said. Investigators showed Nathan the glasses. He confirmed that they looked exactly like his, but he had his in his room. They followed him to his room. Then when he couldn't find the glasses in the room, he said that he must have lost his. Investigators told him that they found those glasses in Wolf Lake Reserve. Nathan responded that he may have dropped them there because that's where he goes for birdwatching all the time. While they were in Nathan's room, the investigators found a letter that was addressed to Richard, but it appeared to be more of a poetic love letter. So based on the interaction with Nathan, they asked him to come down to the station for further interviews. They also brought Richard in. Richard also came from a very prominent and wealthy family. His father was a popular lawyer. Richard himself was extremely smart. He had skipped several grades in school. He graduated from the University of Michigan at only 17 years old. But he had another connection to Bobby. He was Bobby's cousin, and he lived right down the road from Bobby. During Richard's interrogations, he gave the same story that he and Nathan were trying to pick up women. He couldn't remember their names, but he also confirmed that they were in Nathan's red car. As the interrogation stretched into the night, investigators pulled out every trick that they could, all the way to threatening to release the love letter from Nathan to Richard to a certain reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Nathan was in consideration for being accepted into Harvard Law School, and they figured that with the letter being made public, on top of being listed as a suspect in a murder case, they would make Harvard reconsider selecting him. Now, one might think that just being listed in a murder case as a suspect would be enough to make a Ivy League college reconsider selecting him. But like I said in the beginning, this was a completely different world back in 1924. And a love letter to a guy would looked at differently. Nathan and Richard, even being in separate interview rooms, maintained their innocence and stuck with the same exact story. Richard began explaining to investigators about a philosopher that believed that there was a super kind of man. Not Superman, but a super kind of man. And that that kind of man was above everyone else. He said that Nathan and him were both those supermen. They were smart, rich, and young. Now, their families knew that they were at the police station. 
but they thought that they were there helping the police with the investigation, not that they were part of the investigation. So, like every great superman, Nathan's mother had their chauffeur bring him pajamas to the police station since it was getting so late. But this would turn out to be the biggest weakness for the supermen. As the investigators started talking with the chauffeur, they asked him about Nathan's car. The chauffeur told them that on the day that Bobby went missing, he had the car. He was replacing the brakes on it. Investigators then went to Richard. They gave him a pair of pajamas that were just dropped off. And then they dropped the news on him. How could he have been in Nathan's car if the chauffeur had it? And just like that, everything began falling apart. He accused the chauffeur of being uneducated. And before the investigators could leave the room to run this idea by Nathan, Richard said that he would talk and that he would tell the story of what really happened. But it really turned into a he said, he said kind of game. Richard said that Nathan forced him to kidnap Bobby and then Nathan killed Bobby. When investigators told this to Nathan, he also broke away from his story. Everything began spiraling down around him. And he said that this was Richard's idea. He said that Richard had a lifelong fascination of detective novels and that Richard wanted to get away with the perfect crime. Nathan went on to say that he loved Richard and that he just wanted to make Richard happy. He said that they started committing smaller crimes together such as breaking into fraternities and stealing smaller things from them. And that for them, doing crimes together turned into an excited sexual experience. Richard came up with the idea of the perfect crime. To Richard, that would be to kidnap and murder a child, and he knew that they could get away with it. On the day of Bobby's disappearance, they rented a gray car. They didn't have a specific person in mind, so they just started driving around looking for a kid to kidnap. That's when Richard recognized Bobby walking home. With being related to Bobby and living right down the road from him, Richard and Bobby had played tennis before, so Bobby trusted him. When the car stopped next to Bobby, Richard told him that he had a new tennis racket. Bobby hopped in the car and they began driving. Almost immediately, Richard pulled Bobby into the back seat and then began hitting him in the head and then strangled him. When it was dark, they wrapped him in a blanket, put him in the culvert. When investigators asked about the ransom, Nathan said that even though they had everything, the perfect crime needed to have a motive. So that was their motive. Richard and Nathan thought that they were the smartest people. They were part of this superhuman population and that they could not be touched. Coincidentally, the superhumans were brought down by a pair of pajamas and what they described as an uneducated chauffeur. Nathan and Richard both pled guilty to the murder and kidnapping of Bobby Franks. The judge sentenced them to life in prison. On January 28, 1936, Richard was murdered in prison by a fellow inmate. He was cut with a razor across his neck and stabbed over 50 times in the shower, in what the inmate would say was self-defense. Even though he was given a life sentence, Nathan was paroled in March of 1958 after 33 years in prison. He began working as an x-ray assistant at a hospital in Puerto Rico. He died on August 29, 1971, at the age of 66. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. 
Thank you for listening.